Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling great stories from the past, stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we're coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We're coming with stories to tell and we hope you will listen. In this second part of a two-part series on the Battle of Hampton Roads in the American Civil War, we are joined in the studio today by Commander Ryan Mewitt and Associate Professor Wayne Shea and Lieutenant Commander Retired Dwight Hughes. Uh, we are happy to say is of the class of 1967 U.S. Naval Academy and served with the River Forces in Vietnam and is the recipient of the Purple Heart and Bronze Star. He is also the author of the book, Unlike Anything That Ever Floated, The USS Monitor and the Battle of Hampton Roads. In part one, uh, we discussed the origin of the USS Monitor as an experimental ironclad warship following a novel design, employing immature technologies, and rapidly constructed to counter the rebel ironclad CSS Virginia, also known as Merrimack. On the morning of Saturday, March 8, 1862, Monitor approached the entrance to Chesapeake Bay, just as the Virginia sallied forth into Hampton Roads to attack the USS Cumberland and the USS Congress. Meanwhile, in the White House in Washington, a frustrated commander-in-chief convened a council of war to prod Major General George B. McClellan into action on his proposed campaign to capture Richmond. McClellan planned to invade the peninsula between the York and James Rivers at Fort Monroe and Hampton Roads. Throughout this afternoon, throughout the, that afternoon, as discussions continued, telegrams filtered in from Fort Monroe. The Merrimack is close at hand, said one. Then, the Merrimack is engaging the Cumberland at close quarters, and the Congress is now burning. As Presidential Secretary John Hay recalled, for a while, the news looked very badly. Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton ordered the news be made public at once to alert northern ports that they were in grave danger. The next morning, Sunday, March 9th, wrote a senior Treasury official, was as gloomy as any that Washington had experienced since the beginning of the war. Lincoln called an emergency session for a much-alarmed cabinet. John Hay reported that panic was intense at Willard's Hotel. Nothing was too wild to be believed. The president's secretaries characterized this cabinet meeting as, quote, perhaps the most excited and impressive of the whole war. Gideon Wells was asked what could be done to counter this formidable monster, but the Navy secretary had no answers beyond faith in the untried monitor. She should have arrived in Hampton Roads the day before, but due to a break in the telegraph cable, they had no news of her. 
Wells recorded in his diary that the most frightened man was the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. He was at times almost frantic. The panic under which he labored added to the apprehension of others. According to Wells, Stanton insisted that the rebel ironclad could change the whole character of the war. She would destroy every naval vessel and take Fort Monroe. McClellan's campaign against Richmond must be abandoned. General Burnside's forces must be recalled from North Carolina sounds. The vital blockading base of Port Royal Sound must be given up. Stanton feared that Virginia would come up the Potomac, disperse Congress, destroy the capital. She might go to New York and Boston and destroy those cities or hold them for ransom. The Secretary of War was contemptuous of the notion that a two-gun iron raft could stop her. The President's secretaries characterized the participants. War Secretary Stanton, quote, walked up and down the room like a caged lion. Treasury Secretary Chase was impatient. Wells and Secretary of State William Seward were hopeful. General McClellan was, they wrote, dumbfounded and silent. But the president was, quote, as usual in trying moments, composed but eagerly inquisitive, critically scanning the dispatches, interrogating the officers, joining scrap to scrap of information, applying his searching analysis and clear logic to read the danger and find the remedy. However, they concluded, the possibilities of the hour were indeed sufficiently portentous to create consternation. Secretary Wells caustically described Stanton peering out the window with an expansive view down the Potomac, expecting a rebel shell to land in the White House before they left the room. But the Navy Secretary assured the President and Cabinet that Virginia was so loaded down with armor she could not venture outside Hampton Roads. She could not ascend the river in surprises with a cannonball. Certainly she could not attack simultaneously every city and harbor on the coast. It would better become us, advised Wells, to calmly consider the situation and inspire confidence by acting so far as we could with discretion and judgment. Stanton telegraphed governors and major cities of the North to man their forts and place timber rafts and other obstructions at the mouths of harbors. Preparations were made to block the Potomac. Finally, that Sunday afternoon, the chattering telegraph produced the lost message of the night before from Fort Monroe. Monitor had arrived and will take care of the Virginia. The president and his cabinet awaited the outcome. So I think a really new uh, and interesting element as far as American warfare goes here is the ability for people at a distance to follow events in near real time via the telegraph. It seems to have changed the way that Americans connected with and consumed information about the war and the people and the machines that fought it. Could you talk a little bit about how people in the North thought about 
monitor and what happened at Hampton Roads? It's interesting how the attitudes range from enthusiasm uh, in super weapons to fear of complete disaster. What I've just described is the the cabinet uh, was, and particularly apparently Secretary uh, Stanton, was concerned that the that Virginia had the capability to essentially uh, end the war in the in, in the Confederates' favor. Uh, she never did, uh, and the senior naval officers knew that. Um, she was she was too heavy uh, and too unreliable to even leave Hampton Roads, um, but. But most people did not know that, and 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 yet later on, after the Battle of Hampton Roads, the public, the public, and Secretary Wells and Assistant Secretary of the Navy Fox and other senior officials became so enamored of Monitor-type vessels that they they built 50 of them, um, and and yet as a warship type, uh, they were not really all that effective. Um, they did contribute, uh, uh, but they, but they never fulfilled the promise that they that they had. They were, however, excellent experiments in in armor uh, armor protection, uh, as well as the development of uh, of bigger and heavier and uh, guns um, and and steam propulsion. So they were they were a vital link to to what would come after after them. Uh, in the development of the naval technology. In Hampton Roads that Sunday morning, the USS Minnesota was still hard aground. The crew making hasty preparations to abandon the ship with monitor anchored nearby. Fog lifting from the water about 8 o'clock a.m., revealed the CSS Virginia approaching. Minnesota's captain declared to monitors, Captain Warden, if I cannot lighten my ship off the shoal, I shall destroy her. Warden assured him, I will stand by you to the last if I can help you. No, sir, you cannot help me, was the reply. Captain Warden took station in the small iron box of a pilot house near the bow of Monitor, with only his head and shoulders above deck level, peering through a half-inch viewing slit. Jammed at his elbow was the pilot and the helmsman. The only communication between the pilot house and the turret was via runners on the deck below. Within the dim, claustrophobic metal drum of Monitor's turret, 20 feet in diameter, behind eight inches of iron, squatted the two immense 11-inch Dahlgren smoothbores. Lieutenant Green supervised 16 brawny sailors packed in eight to a gun. None of them had been drilled on these guns or in this turret. On the deck below the turret in the pilot house, recalled Paymaster Keeler, everyone was at his post, fixed like a statue. The most profound silence reigned. If there had been a coward heart there, its throb would have been audible. So intense was the stillness. I experienced a peculiar sensation, he wrote. 
I do not think it was fear, but it was different from anything I ever knew before. We were enclosed in what we supposed to be an impenetrable armor. We knew that a powerful foe was about to meet us. Ours was an untried experiment. Our enemy's first fire might make it a coffin for us all. The suspense was awful as we waited in the dim light, expecting every moment to hear the crash of our enemy's shot. Captain Warden charged directly for Virginia, placing his little monitor directly between Minnesota and the foe. In the gloom below, Keeler heard the muffled whomp of a gun, then another and another. Virginia and Minnesota blasted away at each other at long range, skipping shells along the water's surface. Rounds could take 20 to 40 skips. Several friendly shots bounced off monitor. Wrote Keeler, the infernal howl of the shells as they flew over our vessel was all that broke the silence and made it seem still more terrible. Captain Warden closed to about a third of a mile, altered course, and ordered, commence firing. The turret's mammoth gun port cover rumbled open. The big black muzzle protruded. Lieutenant Green peered along the barrel and yanked the firelock at 8.45 a.m. The entire structure throbbed and trembled with a deafening concussion as the eight-ton behemoth leapt inward. The rebel ironclad turned her head upstream and replied with a broadside, followed by a volume of musketry, which rattled upon our iron decks like hailstones, but caused no damage. These first shots made quite a sensation on the worried gunners inside the turret. Captain Warden expected that most rebel shots against the curved exterior of the turret would glance off without damage. But he worried that a shot fired directly in line with the vertical axis of the turret could deform the structure and jam the revolving mechanism. The captain also feared that hundreds of bolt and rivet heads holding together eight layers of one-inch iron plate would blast off inside when hit outside, creating lethal projectiles among the crew. In either case, monitor would be helpless. But, he reported after the fight, when a 150-pound projectile hit straight on from 30 yards, it just created a smooth dent, a perfect mold of the shell two and a half inches deep in the turret iron. The indentation carried right through eight layers of plate without cracking or splitting the iron. To everyone's relief inside, enemy fire did not dislodge a single rivet head and the turret continued to revolve. One rebel shell struck the vulnerable deck edge and tore up one of the iron plates. Worried that the blow might open a seam below the waterline, Warden crawled out of the gun port, walked to the side, and lay down upon his chest to examine the damage, 
with bullets zinging off the iron deck as thick as hailstones in a storm. The hull was uninjured, except for a few splinters of wood, so he crawled back into the turret. Warden announced to the crew that Virginia could not sink them if we let her pound us for a month. The men cheered. As guns bellowed through choking white smoke shot with flame, rounds screamed, clanged, and boomed, and splashed all around. The engines thumped and clanked, blowers roared, black clouds billowed from stacks. The big propellers thrashed the water. The men, trapped inside, many stripped to the waist with scraps of cloth around their ears, shouted, sweated, and struggled to manage their metal monsters. The Virginia's commanding officer, Lieutenant Catesby Jones, reported, we were often within a ship's length of monitor. Once, while passing, we fired a broadside at her only a few yards distant. She and her turret appeared to be under perfect control. Her light draft enabled her to move about us at pleasure. Monitor's chief engineer recalled, ironclad against ironclad. We maneuvered about the bay here and went at each other with mutual fierceness. They circled awkwardly in what would appear to a modern observer as slow motion. Five times during the engagement we touched each other, wrote Lieutenant Green, and each time I fired a gun at Virginia, I will vouch the 168 pounds penetrated her sides. The shot, shell, grape, canister, musket, and rifle balls flew about us in every direction, but did us no damage. Our turret was struck several times, and though the noise was pretty loud, it did not affect us any. Inside the turret, two of the crewmen leaned against the bulkhead, just as a rebel shot whanged against the outside, knocking them senseless, knocked one clean over the gun but both recovered by the following morning, and they were the only injuries among the crew. Commander Hughes, uh, I would like you to maybe comment a little bit about the changes in sort of the, the experience of naval warfare. I mean, what's striking, I think, about the American Civil War is you have David Glasgow Farragut, who is a veteran of the War of 1812, sees combat there, and, uh, and uh, warfare in the age of sail. Now we're seeing something very different. Um, and I'd be especially curious about your thoughts about how uh, the officers and men themselves perceive the differences in, in terms of their relationship to machines, in terms of their relationship to ideas about Connor and courage. Um, I just remind the, the listeners that uh, you quoted uh, William Keeler in the first episode about how he wrote home that uh, there isn't any, there isn't danger enough to give us any glory. Obviously, that this new experience of fighting uh, behind iron armor. So I'd be, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, yes, it was, it truly was revolutionary. Um, and it somewhat paralleled the experience of soldiers um, who started in, in glorious combat, standing up manfully, confronting their enemies face-to-face -face across open fields and exchanging fire, and ended up uh, crouching behind elaborate fortifications and, and, and dug, in, dug into entrenchments. And so it was, it was a contest between the offense and the defense. And at sea, it was a matter of contest between, between 
iron armor and bigger guns. But the uh, the technology of sail, of course, is, 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 is as old as, as, as human history. And uh, sailing ships have been around for 5,000 years, and combat at sea has been also. Um, sailors have always been generous of the, of the open deck and the high rigging, uh, focused up, upward and outward to wind, sea, and sky, uh, maintaining a tenuous equilibrium with the forces of nature. Uh, seamanship uh, was more art, instinct, and experience than science. Uh, but now we are in the, in the machine age, um, and technicians uh, were becoming important. And engineers were technicians of the machine age, and, and they were buried down in dark, in dark dens of noise, fire, and smoke, a completely different uh, perspective. Um, and they were controlling human-created power, um, making the ship go where they wanted to go, regardless of, of nature's uh, whims uh, in reasonable conditions. So it was, it was a case of, of very different sensibilities and perspectives. Uh, it took a while for line officers to accustom themselves to this. Um, ship handling changed quite a bit from dependence on wind for how the ship moved to dependence uh, on your own power and making it go where you wanted it to go. Um, and of course, that's, that's the world we've been in ever since. And I just wanted to add, I think, uh, as you said earlier, there's a technological hinge point happening here to where Monitor presaged everything that would come after, and the rotating turret in particular uh, looked a lot like what would come in naval technology and what the warships of the 20th century would look like would be uh, much influenced by some of the technological innovations in Monitor. But likewise, the experience of the people that uh, served on board these ships at the beginning of the war the experience that they had would be recognizable to a sailor in Nelson's Navy or who fought in the War of 1812. But the men in Monitor, uh, somebody in a German U-boat in 1914, would be able to identify, I think, very strongly with the experience that they had um, as compared to their brothers earlier in the war in a, in a more traditional ship. Lieutenant Green uh, of the Monitor wrote extensively about his experience inside the turret. The effect of one shut up in a revolving drum is perplexing, he wrote. During the battle, both vessels were continuously turning, backing and forwarding, while the turret spun independently. This was not your traditional man-of-war broadside gun deck. Green could see out only through the few-inch gap between the gun muzzle and the top of the gun port, which was a favorite target for eager muskets on Virginia. Through smoke, noise, concussion, and the whirling of the turret, the lieutenant was disoriented and frequently blind. He could not see the enemy. A rebel projectile entering an open gun port would put them out of action. He could not even see how his guns were pointed relative to his own vessel. A careless round striking the pilot house directly in front of the turret would end the fight. To make matters worse, the steam-driven turret was slow to start, and once moving, slow to stop revolving, 
even slower to reverse. Like all monitors machinery, these mechanisms were undergoing their first combat trial. Green found it nearly impossible to stop rotation in line of fire, open the gun port, sight and shoot at a target that was itself moving. So he settled on a pattern. Rotate the turret away from Virginia and stop the load, leaving the gun ports open to save time and effort. Then, when ready, start revolving again and fire both guns on the fly as the target swept past the muzzles. Green personally aimed and fired every round. To one of Virginia's lieutenants, Monitor appeared but a pygmy. But in her size was one great element of her success, he wrote. The Monitor was firing every seven or eight minutes and nearly every shot struck. A Confederate Marine recalled, when Monitor's turret revolved, we could see nothing but two immense guns. Those guns bellowed and promptly disappeared while he and his gun crew struggled to respond. Virginia's captain, Lieutenant Jones, wondered how the Yankees could take aim so quickly. The Virginia, however, was a large target, he reported, and generally so near that the monitor's shot did not often miss. It did not appear to us that our shell had any effect upon the monitor. Jones maneuvered his lumbering vessel for nearly an hour trying to ram Virginia and board her. But Warden turned Monitor away and suffered only a glancing blow. In the process, Monitor just missed Virginia's submerged stern, almost snapping off her rudder and propeller. But as Monitor slid by Virginia, she delivered a 68-pound rifle shell directly against Monitor's pilot house from about 20 yards. Captain Warden's eyes were close behind the viewing slit. The explosion cracked and almost broke the little iron box he was in, flooding it with light. Paymaster Keeler, standing below the platform awaiting orders, recalled, a flash of light and a cloud of smoke filled the house. I noticed the captain stagger and put his hands to his eyes. The blood was running from his face, which was blackened with the powder smoke. The pilot and the helmsman were shaken but not injured, while a stunned and partially blinded warden ordered the helm to starboard turning Monitor away from the action into shallow water where Virginia could not follow and her guns could not reach. My eyes, Warden said, I am blind, but do not mind me. Save the Minnesota if you can. Lieutenant Green came forward from the turret to assume command. Seeing Monitor withdraw, Minnesota's captain ordered every preparation to destroy the ship. But the rebel ironclad did not approach. The tide was ebbing. Virginia was damaged and low on ammunition. Lieutenant Jones decided to retire to the protection of friendly forts around Norfolk, 
assuming that he could resume the contest the next day. Confederates would excoriate Jones for leaving Minnesota in enemy hands. Now in command of monitor, Lieutenant Green longed to re-engage. But Virginia was retreating. He had to cover Minnesota. Another hit on the pilot house could be disabling, and their wounded captain needed attention. So at about 12.15, Monitor let go a few last shots and turned away. Lieutenant Green also would be criticized for this decision by armchair admirals. Paymaster Keeler climbed through the iron hatch to the deck above, strewn with shell fragments. Virginia's parting shot shrieked over their heads and exploded 100 feet away. Small steamers and boats from Newport News, Fort Monroe, and the other men of war surrounded them. They were all eager to learn the extent of our injuries and congratulate us on our victory, he wrote. Thousands of spectators were astonished to learn that Monitor was essentially uninjured and ready to resume the fight. Aboard the Minnesota, Assistant Secretary of the Navy Gustavus Fox had seen the whole fight. He hailed down to Monitor that they had, had fought the greatest naval battle on record and behaved as gallantly as men could wrote Lieutenant Green to his parents. I felt proud and happy then, Mother, and felt fully repaid for all I had suffered. When told that Minnesota was saved, Warden said, then I can die happy. Future Admiral John Warden would recover most of the sight in his right eye, but his face was permanently blackened and his left eye destroyed. Monitor was struck 22 times, twice on the pilot house, nine on the turret, eight in the side armor, and three on deck. Lieutenant Green was black with smoke and powder down to his underclothes. His nervous system was shot. Every bone ached. He could hardly stand. My nerves and muscles twitched as though electric shocks were continually passing through them and my head ached as if it would burst. Sometimes I thought my brain would come right out over my eyebrows. I lay down and tried to sleep. I might as well have tried to fly. Thanks, White, for that uh, fantastic story. Um, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what happens uh, in the wake of the Battle of Hampton Roads, what, what happens going forward with the, uh, with the participants, both the ships uh, and the people involved. Well, after the battle, um, it was a stalemate in Hampton Roads for a couple of months as, uh, as General McClellan advanced up the peninsula. Um, the uh, Monitor participated in a battle at Drury's Bluff on the James River in, in May of 1862, um, but they were not able to... Uh, to uh, bypass the, the fortress at the top of the bluff. Uh, Monitor had, had trouble getting, uh, uh, elevating her guns far enough to hit, hit, the, uh, hit the bluff and hit the, uh, hit the rebel positions. So she backed off to less accurate range. 
And the, the USS Galena, the, the other U.S. Ironside, uh, was, was badly damaged and mauled at that battle, and, and, uh, and they later withdrew. Uh, Union forces recaptured Norsepoke in the Gosport shipyard, leaving uh, Virginia nowhere to go, so, so the Confederates destroyed her, and that was the end of the Virginia. Uh, Monitor uh, was in Hampton Roads for the most of the rest of the year. Monitor was ordered to, to uh, down the coast to support naval operations in the south, and uh, she encountered a, a gale uh, off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, and sank. And so uh, that was the last to monitor. Uh, the, the Confederates built a number of uh, ironclads like Virginia, and the, and the Union con uh, continued to build monitors, uh, which served throughout the war. Uh, Captain Warden had a long and successful career and retired as an admiral, finally. Lieutenant Green, a second-in-command and monitor, uh, stayed in the Navy after the war and advanced to commander and was uh, serving uh, on active duty in the 1870s. Unfortunately, he, for, for reasons that are not clear, he then committed suicide. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Dwight Hughes, thanks very much. Uh for everything today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.